Welcome to this audio recording by the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth. I'm Jim Falk, President of the Council. We are a nonprofit, nonpartisan organization dedicated to promoting public awareness of global issues and the ways in which they affect the Dallas-Fort Worth region. Become a member today at dfwworld.org and help us connect North Texas with the world. This podcast is made possible through the generous support of Haynes & Boone LLP. We hope you enjoy it. The World Affairs Council gave me uh, Ted Fishman's uh, bio to help me in preparing the introduction, and the breadth of his experience is remarkable. He's been an author, a journalist, an essayist, a commodities trader, a consultant, a scholar, a network news expert commentator, and the head of a program for executives in Shanghai. And I probably missed something in there. Today he lives in Chicago, but he's truly a citizen of the world. He's lived in Japan and Indonesia. He's one of the world's experts on China and its emergence as a world power. His best-selling book, China Inc., is an international bestseller, and he's been published in 25 languages around the world. In addition to his impressive background and experience, Mr. Fishman has two skills that are highly pertinent to us here today. He can explain complex topics like global economic trends in a way that's clear and understandable for non-experts, and he's a gifted storyteller who presents important ideas with wit and intelligence. I can't wait to hear him speak. Please join me in welcoming Ted Fisher. No, you didn't leave anything out, and I think you gilded the lily. Uh, very good. Thank you, Clarence. Um, I am delighted to be here. It's my first trip to Fort Worth. I'm very, very happy to be here. Um, I brought some weather with me from Chicago. Sorry about that. Um, so you merged your two World Affairs Councils, which I think is a very, very good omen for world relations when Dallas and Fort Worth can come together. Uh, um, this is a very interesting place to talk about China. Uh, you know, Fort Worth, there's some aspects of the economy here that have to deal with China in a way that no other, uh, uh, in a way that's unique to the industries here, and I'm talking in particular about the defense industry, and, and the defense industry um, will always have China in the background, but will not have to deal with China as a manufacturer uh, necessarily. Uh, and in most cases. And it creates a dynamic uh, in which the firms in that industry have to constantly compete with other firms that do have the resources of the rest of the world at their disposal, engineering talent, uh, manufacturing prowess, and so on, and yet have to assemble those resources here at home. And uh, that introduces China in a, in a back doorway uh, because no industry competes in a bubble, even if it is a defense industry. And I think uh, it creates, in a way that I'm beginning to understand, <clears throat> some American industries and American technologies that are actually pushing the envelope in terms of productivity, engineering, and other ways, because they have to work in an environment in which their universe of resources is limited compared to other high technology companies, for instance. And then, of course, uh, this area of the country is a big logistics center. Now, when I travel around and I fly into new cities, I'm always looking out the window and I'm looking at the warehouses that are beneath the wings of the plane. 
And I've noticed since I began the China Project, probably around five years ago, first started thinking about it as a book, uh, the landscape of the United States has changed. And you may have noticed this on the roads that you travel, that there is an increasing uh, number of trucks on the road, for example. And about half of the new vehicular traffic being added to American roads is truck traffic. Well, this has something to do with uh, how we uh, interface with China. Uh, as you know, this area of the country is a giant logistics intermodal center. Uh, and we now receive from China alone around $300 billion worth of trade goods into the United States. And many of these come through the ports in Southern California, particularly Long Beach and Los Angeles. And the container ships there are growing larger and larger. Today, a container ship pulling into the port of Los Angeles can have more than 14,000 TEUs. That's the equivalent of 7,000 uh, um, of these boxes that you see on the back of a semi-trailer truck. And if you unloaded just that single ship and took everything off that ship and put it into the Mall of America, America's largest retail space, you could fill every inch of the Mall of America, the hallways, the bathrooms, the, en the entrances, with eight feet high worth of merchandise. And do it again so that you can fill the mall twice over on a single ship. And yet, these ships come in day after day in various sizes from 5,000 TEUs to 14,000 TEUs over and over again in a constant stream uh, which provides uh, the goods that fill our trains and fill our trucks and have created enormous opportunities for those parts of the country that can capture that intermodal logistic traffic. And as manufacturing jobs have declined in the United States, and we've lost close to three million manufacturing jobs in the United States since the year 2000, one of the paths to the middle class are the kinds of jobs that are be being created in this area, the logistics jobs. Now, it's not a perfect trade. Uh, the wages are slightly lower uh, than the average manufacturing job, not a whole lot lower. The geography needed to create a single job is about twice that in manufacturing, but the employment numbers are huge. In Los Angeles alone, in Southern California, there are now half a million people engaged in the logistics trade alone, moving things from ship to shore and into Southern California and beyond. And the economic footprint in Southern California of the logistics business is now larger than the entertainment industry. This is a shift. This is a fundamental economic shift, and it's happening all over the country. Wherever you go, keep your eyes open uh, for the warehouses, and you will see China in action. Uh, and I know here uh, the Alliance facility is expanding. Uh, there was a, a great deal of foresight in creating that, and it is one of the facilitators of world trade. There is a kind of network effect. The more of these facilities that exist, the more will exist because they create the infrastructure for trade and in a way they create the incentive for trade. Um, I wanted to just take a poll here because I've talked to some of you. Um, who here has been to China? Okay, so that's a pretty good number. And now you're looking for, a, Fort Worth is looking for a sister city in China. And um, 
I would suggest one place you want to look seriously is the province of Sichuan. You know, Sichuan is regarded as, you know, China's southeast. We would regard it as sort of the middle of the country if you looked at a map. But they do have fantastic cuisine there, which is really fiery hot. And I saw how much pepper Bruce put on his chicken when I was sitting next to him, and I think it's a natural. I think it's a natural. Um, and Sichuan is an interesting place because it is a little bit behind the rest of China in terms of its urbanization. It has some big cities there. In fact, the largest city in the world was spun off from Sichuan. It's Chongqing, which is a municipality, really more than a city. It's a municipality of over 30 million people. Uh, and it was so big, it was spun off from Sichuan because Sichuan, uh, even without Chongqing, has 90 million people, you know, one province. Uh, you know, uh, about the size of, no, nowhere near the size of Texas, really closer to the size of Illinois. Um, and uh, when you travel through Sichuan province, you see part of the dynamic that you see all over China, which is uh, this huge demographic shift, which to me is the most important fact to understand about how China is changing the world. It is the shift of people picking themselves up out of the countryside and moving into a city. Um, Sichuan is also regarded as China's breadbasket. So when you travel the countryside in Sichuan, you're looking at beautiful mountain. Anybody been to Sichuan province here? Okay, so you know, you know the landscape. It's gorgeous, it's, it's mountainous, uh, it's lush. And you think you're seeing this gorgeous rural landscape, but if you look under every single tree in every single field, there is somebody working the land. And they are not rich people. Uh, they are poor people. Uh, the farm income in China for the average farmer is something under $300 a year. For some provinces in China, it's under $80 a year. And there's enormous incentive to get yourself to a city. So the big city in Sichuan province uh, is um, Chengdu, which is a pretty fabulous place. Uh, not just because the restaurants are fabulous but because it is the recipient of migrants, many of these 90 million people coming into the city and creating a new life for themselves. In Chengdu, behind uh, uh, the cities in southern China around Hong Kong, behind Shanghai, behind Beijing, is growing up into a fabulous metropolitan center something like the big cities in the American Midwest, which act as the go-between between the east and west of China. Um, and when a Chinese city moves into gear, it moves into gear very, very quickly, which explains why you will see lots of the uh, dynamic that affects you in your life. Anybody here build a house or a porch in the last three or four years? Uh, cement, wood, steel, everything has gone up because we are competing with China's urbanization even in our backyards. Um, every single month in China between 1.5 and 2 million people move out of the countryside into a city in China. How big is uh, metropolitan Fort Worth? What, 675? So uh, two Fort Worths of urban collective created in China every single month. And you need power plants for that, you need roads for that, apartments for that. Uh, let's take a look at uh, some other cities that uh, can make this clear where Sichuan is going. 
So Shanghai got there first. Um, you know, one of your sister cities is Budapest, right, in, here in Fort Worth. Budapest is a city that was created in the 1850s, 1860s, really got going at that steam. It's of that generation. Shanghai, for a Chinese city, is roughly the same vintage and very, very young. But if you walk along the water in Shanghai, you see something that looks a little bit like Budapest. You see buildings that are built in the same era, the Beaux-Arts style buildings that you would see um, in the Hungarian capital. Uh, and the city was a vibrant international center up through the you know, 1930s um, until the ravages of imperialism and war uh, dashed its prospects and then uh, the communist Chinese uh, really uh, shut down economic activity in the city. But when China went for market reform, the country identified Shanghai as one of the early centers and the target for uh, China's global aspirations to have uh, industrial centers and financial centers. So in the last six to seven years, uh, seven to eight years now, uh, Shanghai has built between six and 7,000 buildings over 15 stories tall. I'm from the city, Chicago, which is the birthplace of the skyscraper. Uh, building skyscrapers longer than any other place on the planet, we do not have 7,000 buildings over 15 stories tall. Last year, Shanghai closed on construction of enough real estate to make that city the home of more commercial real estate than all of New York City. Pretty amazing. And Beijing is catching up. Beijing is a little slower, but it's catching up and it has a new generation of buildings. Last month, I was uh, sent by National Geographic to Beijing to capture uh, this kind of commotion and tumult and activity going around in the construction sector in Beijing, sector in Beijing, in advance of the 2008 Summer Olympics. And it is astonishing. Uh, there are 10,000 construction sites in Beijing right now. There's $50 billion worth of construction activity aimed just at the Olympics. And there's almost $800 billion worth of infrastructures going projects going on in Beijing at the moment of all sorts. That is a huge, huge number equivalent to all of the economic activity in just about any country in the globe. And building these buildings is a group that you see everywhere you walk in Beijing. You see them on the roofs where when, when you look in any direction. You see them walking on the streets in any direction. You hear the noises that they make wherever you are in the city. The cutting of saws, uh, the drilling of drills, and very ominously giant clanging noises of things that are being dropped all over the city. Because the people building these buildings are new arrivals, and they seem to tend to drop things. So there's this, there's this kind of symphony of gongs going on, which is the Beijing construction scene. So one day, I followed the noise outside of my hotel in search of these workers. And there happened to be between 2 and 3 million migrant workers in construction in Beijing today. That is a very big number, two to three million people rushing to finish all of these projects in time for the onrush of tourists who are going to be coming to Beijing in August. So outside of my hotel there, uh, which is, uh, was the uh, Ch Hotel China World, some of you may know it, um, there are some premier buildings going up. One of them is the CCTV Tower. 
Now, this is a remarkable building. It is a giant Mobius strip, 77 stories tall, twisted, and then it has a cantilever top that connects two towers at the top, and it happens to be just a shade smaller in square footage than the U.S. Pentagon. It is the headquarters of China's television broadcasting company. It's one of the most expensive buildings ever built in the history of the world on per square meter basis, which makes it one of the most expensive buildings in the history of the world, which is kind of a scandal in China uh, because many people in that country are among the poorest in the world. And it is like the Pentagon in another respect. It has a giant hole in the middle, except it's as if you took the Pentagon and tilted it up on its side and the hole were a, was a window to the sky instead of a courtyard because the building is like this giant, and this is the nickname that Beijingers have it. They have a nickname for every new building in, in China. They call it the Twisted Donut. And then, um, then there's also the stadium, the Olympic Stadium, which is this giant bird's nest, a very graceful uh, structure. It's almost like the world, you might think of it as the world's biggest sculpture. Um, and then there is a performing arts uh, center in China, which in Beijing, which is brand new, and it emerges out of a giant reflecting pool like the top half of an egg. So these are the symbols of the civic projects in Beijing, a window to the sky, a bird's nest, an egg. It is a kind of public propaganda uh, that tells you how China wants the rest of the world to think of itself. It's advanced, it's global, it's technologically sophisticated, design sophisticated, and it's welcoming. It's welcoming like a nest, it's nurturing like an egg, it's transparent like a window. We can talk about whether that matches the reality of modern China today. And then there's another building, uh, and it's the building I walked to with three friends of mine who were going to help me blanket the construction workers there as they came out for their lunch. And this is a tall, slender building. It's going to be the tallest building in Shanghai. It's designed by the Chicago architecture firm Skidmore, Owens, and Merrill, which has designed many of the world's tallest buildings. And it starts out somewhat wide at the bottom, tapers at the top, and has a kind of filigreed, very graceful top uh, that's a little bit transparent. And the nickname Beijingers have for this building is the middle finger. <laughs> So I walked out to the middle finger uh, at lunchtime as the workers, 5,000 workers, were pouring off of the site. Some uh, going to the street stalls there where they were going to have their daily uh, nickel bowl of sheep gut soup. I thought I would uh, you know, sit down and enjoy them and talk to the workers over their sheep gut soup, but thought better of it once I saw the soup. So I went to the curb where some men were eating their lunches out of their lunch pails. And one of the guys I came to was this stocky guy, a little shorter than me, much bigger head, very ruddy, uh, had a construction head on that was far too small for his head. I uh, kind of jiggled when he talked and when he laughed. And I went up to introduce myself and I said, who are you? And he said, I'm uh, Mr. Wong. I come from Shandong province. And I said, how long have you been in Beijing? And he said, well, I've been here about uh, three weeks. Uh, me and my crew, we just came from Inner Mongolia, where the weather was getting too cold and the wages were too low. And we heard that Beijing had doubled the wages, so we rushed down here to find work on a crew. 
you know, take their number among these two to three million construction workers. So here they are, landing on one of the world's premier buildings being built at, at the moment. And I said, well, what are you doing on, on the uh, building? He said, we are putting in the ventilation in the first 30 floors. So that's a pretty big job. Uh, and it, Beijing is a city where ventilation is really, really important because it's very polluted, very dusty, and uh, it's just going to get worse. And I said, well, that's a, that's a tough job. Do you have on-the-job training? And he said, uh, yes, we do. We have some on-the-job training. And you're right, it's sophisticated. And I said, well, how do you go about the on-the-job training? And he walked in front of me, and he did this. He pointed to his foot. And I said, oh, well, what, do you, what do you mean with that? And then he went over to one of the workers, and he went, whack. <laughs> This is an education method you might consider for the <laughs> World Affairs Council. Maybe one of your next seminars, you can get some pe people who have worldly experience and come and hit your members in the pants. And uh, I said, well, what does that do? Uh, he said, well, my workers, many of them, and he pointed to them, are very young, and they have just come from the farms, and most of these 35 people you're looking at actually come from my village, and they travel with me around China, and uh, some of them stay as we make the trips, and some of them peel off and we acquire new ones, but uh, they're my group from where I am. We speak the same dialect, um, but they have to learn very quickly on the job because uh, my reputation as their foreman is on the hook wherever we go. And, and I thought, wow, this is a recipe for disaster. Here they are building this very sophisticated system in a very sophisticated building being taught by the boot of their foreman. So I called the architect, Brian Lee, who's a friend of mine in Chicago, and I said, Brian, I just met Mr. Wong on the site. He said he just came with a bunch of farm boys from Inner Mongolia down to your project. He's putting in the ventilation on the first 30 floors of your building. Uh, it has to be pretty sophisticated infrastructure in the building, I should think. Um, and um, I think uh, you ought to take a look because something really, really bad could happen. <laughs> And he said, you know, we've been building in China for a long time, and this is one thing that we've learned. First of all, that the workers learn very, very quickly on the job. You think you're hiring low-skill workers, but their skills go up pretty fast. And, and this is one of the legacies of Mao's China, where he really stressed the mobilizability, mobilization of the workers so that they can move from rural tasks to industrial tasks at great speed and also uh, make the adjustments they needed to, uh, to do that in, in lifestyle and also in learning. But he also said something else. He said, we know that their skills are not going to be as high as workers in the United States and Europe. So we machine and manufacture elements of the building off-site in factories, and the building you're looking at has many components, more than you would imagine, that are, in essence, snap-on parts. So as they build the building going up, they are snapping on the windows, snapping on the steel structures, snapping in the ventilation, all of which is made in factories to very tight specifications. 
Uh, and it used to be, he said, that we brought in and we imported most of the materials from abroad and even imported many of the workers and the engineers on it. And over time, China is acquiring more and more of these tasks. So now we are just, as the foreign architecture firm, we are just at the very, very top of the construction process. And the Chinese, through learning quickly, uh, figuring out methods to adapt to their style of workforce are accomplishing not only amazing tasks, but tasks which put their buildings ahead of buildings elsewhere in the world. Because you can have this very high technology wed to China's very, very low wages. Those construction workers, even though their wage had doubled, are only making $8 a day working six days a week, and if they don't show up one of those six days, they don't get any of their pay for the week. Uh, so you can have thousands and thousands of workers on a site that you wouldn't consider having on a site in America or Europe or Japan. And you can unleash them on very finely detailed work, as long as it's work that's commensurate with their skills. So if you look at a Chinese building, a uh, modern skyscraper, it actually has far more detail than the new buildings going up in Europe, Japan, and the United States because of the labor equation. That's why the top can be filigreed. That's why many of the buildings have very, very elaborate decoration. And that's why Chinese cities look not just like modern cities that we have here, but they look like they're in the middle of the 21st century because they fulfill the architect's fantasy. You know, the kind of thing that that architect was dreaming when he was 13 or 14 years old and doodling in class and drawing pictures of the Jetsons in Futurama. He's making those buildings in China today because he can. The same kind of impulse that when America had low labor rates in the Depression, we could build the Chrysler Building, we could build the Empire State Building, and we could have very elaborate, well-decorated buildings. Now, not only are the cities growing at an astonishing speed, but China is also creating a new kind of workplace, which is also very, very large by our standards. Um, the uh, first wave of light industry uh, to feed the global appetite for Chinese goods um, assembled in southern China. And across from Hong Kong is a city some of you, I'm sure, have been to, Shenzhen. Who's, who's been to Shenzhen? Okay, that, that would be a natural stop for a lot of people doing business in China. Shenzhen, around 15, 17 years ago, was a pretty small place, only a city of 30,000 people, a fishing village, really, uh, close to Hong Kong. And then its economic miracle began, and today it is a city of 10 million people, bigger than Greater Paris. And it has suburbs of a million strong all around it. And one of these suburbs is called Dongwan. And Dongwan is not a natural place for a city because it's kind of a hilly place. So if you want to build a factory there, you have to bulldoze a mountain in order to create the flatland to build your factory. Well, I visited one of these factories. It was a garment factory run by a friend of mine. Um, and they had bulldozed a mountain and put up a factory space, dormitory space, a hotel, office, laboratory, showroom, enough for 10,000 workers on the site. So I went there and you go in and you see the usual assortment of young women cutting and sewing. Uh, but then you go to the laboratory and you see something else. You see a room with 200 washing machines, 200 dryers, 200 boxes of detergent, and 200 tanks of water so that the company can test in the conditions of every market it sells its garments in the water, the machines, and the detergent that those clothes will be uh, used in. And 
then you walk through the offices, and the offices aren't just offices, there's something else there. There are showrooms on the site of the factory in which uh, purveyors of textiles, buttons, ribbons from all over the world, all the things that go into the garments they make, can show them on the site of the factory so that when designers come from New York, Madrid, Paris, Milan, uh, they can get there and they can have the goods available to them on the spot. They could design the goods there and walk them right over to the factory so that they can be air shipped out on short notice and test marketed in their home market. But if you don't have the time for that, the company has built mock showrooms for the Gap, Ralph Lauren departments and department stores, Dillard department stores. So you can create the garment on site, walk it into this uh, room that replicates exactly the room it would be shown in, in its home market, and hang it up just to see how it hangs. And this brings the whole supply chain into one place. And the, mo the model is so successful that they are bulldozing another mountain next to the factory and putting in facilities for 10,000 more workers. And it's not the biggest factory in the area. The biggest one is down the road. It, it makes goods for iPod, Hewlett Packard, um, other things that we use in our everyday consuming life here that come on our roads and fill our intermodal centers. And this is a factory that has 270,000 workers. Very, very large. Now, there's been news in the last few days about a new study that shows that uh, costs are going up in China, that some manufacturers are rethinking their China strategies, um, and that there's uh, wage inflation in China. And I thought it would be interesting today to put that in perspective. Uh, recently, I was giving a talk in Williamsburg, Virginia, and I thought this would offer a chance for me to look at some labor records which might shed light on the relative cost of a Chinese worker compared to other workers in uh, you know, our economy. So if I were to ask you, in the history of the United States, who are the lowest cost workers in the history of our economy, uh, who would you say? What's one answer? Slaves. Yeah, slaves. That's, that's, that's the answer I thought I had. So I looked at the records of, you know, there are no wage records for slaves uh, because slaves were compelled to work and cruelly compelled to work. And, uh, you know, that was part of the economic equation. Uh, and it created the darkest period in our history. Um, but you could go to another slave owner and say, I need workers for my workshop or my fields. How much would it cost? And it turns out if you look at the wages, at the, at the cost to hire a slave in the 1850s, it is around uh, five to six times more expensive in constant dollars to hire a slave in the 1850s as it is to hire one of those young women who's cutting and sewing in southern China today. Pretty amazing. Right? So I thought, well, maybe slaves, you know, I, I live in the shadow of the University of Chicago. I'm always thinking maybe there's some economic factor here I'm not considering. Uh, maybe because slaves could be compelled to work, maybe they offered higher value for the workers and, they, and, the, and the owners could demand a higher cost. Well, what about the workers who 10 and 15 years later uh, um, uh, undertook uh, to work on America's greatest industrial project of the time, uh, arguably all time, uh, which was the creation of the Transcontinental Railroad. Uh, we built one, the Canadians built one, and uh, that needed a lot of workers too. 
So when American industrials were thinking about who to hire, first, of course, they hired American workers. Well, it turns out that American workers were not suitable because the employers thought they were too prone to drunkenness. Uh, alcohol consumption in the 19th century was around 40% higher than it is today. And we had prohibition not just for moral reasons, there was an economic uh, impetus for prohibition too. Um, and then they looked around for a group to replace it and they went to uh, Central and Northern Europe and they found workers to come in as immigrants. And guess what? It turned out that those workers were too prone to organization. Uh, and to unionization, which the railroad barons thought was worse than drunkenness. <laughs> uh, so where did they go? Well, they went to the very same spot, not just asserting it, the very, very same spot is that factory I just described to you in southern China. And they brought back Chinese men who were rural peasants leaving their village, entering an industrial future, and uh, beginning life anew far from home, separated from their families. And the railroad barons found that these were the highest value workers in the world for them. Uh, they had no power to negotiate their wages. They didn't have access to the language. Um, and yet, their wages were between six and seven times higher than the women cutting and sewing in southern China today. So Chinese wages, there may be some cost pressure, uh, may be hard to put the plant exactly where you want it, you might have to choose another Chinese city to do it, but the Chinese industrial miracle, uh, with the aid of foreign capital, uh, creating more and more industrial infrastructure is far from over because the wages paid in China are not just low in comparison to other wages in the world today. They are low in comparison to just about any wage of any industrial place since the Industrial Revolution began. And there are still around 200 million people, according to the Chinese government's estimate, who are expected to make this walk from countryside to city. And it's quite an enduring uh, miracle. Uh, I thought I would finish with one story, um, and it's a story of a journey that I like, a kind of journey that I like to take in China, which is to get me out of the city, as, get as far as I can from one of these giant urban megapolises. And when I do that, um, I get on a bus, I travel for a day or two days, as long as it takes to really get out. So on one of my first trips, I spent all day and all night getting to this town called Rudong. I got out and looked really, really sleepy. Just a few bicycles downtown. There was one beat up kind of government shopping center. I'm sure it's all much improved now. Uh, and uh, at 11.30 at night, I went out to eat. And I went out to eat. Uh, at the stands that were set up outside the market that were feeding people coming off the late shift. And there's a lot of competition in China. So even at 11.30 at night, the uh, show is spectacular. So I walked up to a noodle stand where the guy, I'm sure many of you have seen this, was making uh, lo mein noodles, which was a process which involved 
uh, addressing a mountain of flour with some shortening, wrapping his arms around it, shoving it together, whacking it on a marble slate and doing it about 25 times and stretching it out. And before you know it, you know, these 25 folds happened and he stretched it out and there were about two, 3,000 strands of vermicelli noodles that he was going to put in the soup that came from this giant cauldron of, of herbs and bones and stock and it was irresistible. And the advertisement floated in the form of steam over the stall. So I went to the stall and I was looking at this uh, display and I was looking at the soup, my mouth wide open, and at a table about as close as this table was a family of three. Uh, a mom, a dad, and their 13-year-old daughter. And the mom was this, uh, even 11.30 night, she was this bright-eyed woman looking straight at me, looking at me, looking at the soup. And she came over, her hands on her hip, and she said, why are you here in Rudong uh, not to study the soup? And I said, no, I'm not here to study the soup. I'm here because I'm writing a book about China and how China is changing the world. And she scratched her head, took it in, looked at me, took me by the lapels and said, really, you should write a book about me. <laughs> Wow, that is the most egocentric thing I've ever heard. Of course, the book's going to be about me. <laughs> and then, um, then I thought for a minute and I said, well, if you think about China over the last century, where it began with this moribund uh, dynasty, the Manchu dynasty that most Chinese considered foreign, and then it had the uh, stumbling efforts towards popular, so, you know, popular sovereignty uh, and democracy, and then the horrors of um, imperialism, and then got dragged into the nastiness of the world's wars, and then the excesses of communism, including campaigns which caused mass famines, one of which is probably the greatest man-made disaster in the history of the world, killing between 30 and 70 million people. More people died of China's own civil wars and economic policies in the 20th century than died in all of Europe's wars in the 20th century. Uh, the China had a very, very bloody 20th century. And then that person survived through the death of Mao, through the tumult of market reform, and had to reinvent their life again if you talk to anybody who's experienced any of that, their story's interesting. And for most people, there's heroism in their story, in their survival. Of course, there's villains in those stories, too. But the survival has a strong element of heroism. And when you travel to China, I encourage you to tap those stories because talking to people about their personal histories is very, very interesting. And sometimes they won't share that uh, among each other, but you as a foreigner have access to that. Uh, so I said, okay, I'll write something about you. She said, well, come see me in the market. Uh, I'll show you my business uh, tomorrow morning. I have a tofu business where we make these silver dollar tofus that are a staple in the lunch lunches. And uh, if you see it, you might learn something. So I said, when should I come? And she said, come at 4.30 in the morning when we open up. <laughs> okay, she has, a very, she has a very long work day. Uh, went and got a few winks of sleep at a... Uh, a small hotel, knocked on the door at 4.30 in the morning, learned the woman's nickname, which was Little Rocket, because she was at the door, pulled me in and my translator, 
and uh, showed us around the market, and it was a fantastic collection of fruits, vegetables, dry goods, live animals, slaughtered animals, uh, something that before the period of China's market reform would have been inconceivable to anyone in, in, in China. Um, and yet here it all was, run by people running their own small businesses. And I looked around it and I saw the vegetables that were stacked up neatly, you know, the kind that would make a Whole Foods produce guy weep uh, with envy. And I said, how much of this stuff, Little Rocket, comes from within 50 kilometers of here? And she said, I don't know. So she took a market survey and she went to all the market vendors and said, how much comes within uh, 50 kilometers of here? She said, the consensus is half. I said, really, how much comes from within a, uh, you know, 75 kilometers? And she said, nearly everything. And I said, well, 100 kilometers. And she kind of shouted out to everybody, how much comes from within 100 kilometers? And people just went like this. I don't know about you know I don't know about your markets here in Fort Worth, but in my market in Chicago, nothing comes from within 25 kilometers. Very little comes from within 50 kilometers, and yet here is a market with hundred thousand or more goods, and they all come locally from local businesses starting things. Now it happens to be a feature of the Chinese economy that there is enormous redundancy wherever you go. You can uh, stock a local market virtually anywhere in China with a vast variety of goods all gathered from things within a few hundred kilometers. And uh, it's a puzzle to economists because economists think that as economies grow over time, businesses tend to consolidate. But so far in China, they tend to proliferate, not to consolidate. Uh, and there, today, there's around 85 million businesses in China. Uh, you know, 25 years ago, there were none. In the United States, by comparison, there's 26 million businesses. So in this brief period of market flowering, the Chinese have started more than three times as number of businesses in the course of one lifetime than we've started in 400 years. Uh, and so this puzzled me. So I had the chance to talk to the CEO of Carefor. Carefor is Walmart's competitor around the world. They run giant, wonderful hypermarkets. And I described it. I said, how is that possible? He said, well, you know, actually, this is very similar to our situation in China. You walk into one of our stores, and it looks like it's branded under our brand, and you're going into a very familiar place. But in China, we source 80% of the things in all of our stores locally. And we have over 120,000 different SKUs in our store. And it's amazing. And he said, and I said, well, why do you do that? You have these super efficient supply chains all over the world. Uh, you know, they take advantage of the kinds of, uh, of you know, logistics infrastructure that's being built up over here over the last 30 years. And uh, he said, because China doesn't have the infrastructure for that kind of uh, distribution, and they have the local suppliers, but they are being, in each instance, they are being trained by us, honed by us, so that they improve their delivery, improve their quality, improve their marketing. And there are companies doing this in regions like Sichuan province where the local market is 90 million people, the local market in the province is 120 million people. And so all over China are these companies that are local, have very large markets, are working at economies of scale like the ones I described where their factories have 10,000 to 200,000 people. Uh, where there is an emerging middle class that is buying apartments in 7,000 new skyscrapers in Shanghai and all over China. 
And out of this cauldron of activity will emerge companies that are honed in this competitive market, the advantage of the economy of scale, the benefit of this huge consumer growing market, and they will come out of China lean and mean and ready to compete and providing us with fabulous goods at fabulous prices, and we haven't even seen them yet, but they're coming. And our challenge as a country is to, number one, acknowledge, even if it's begrudgingly, that the Chinese miracle is here to stay. It may have some setbacks, but it's here to stay because the free market cat is out of the bag. That they will be our competitors and will they be our partners? For our wealth, we have to find out ways to make them our partners. And how will we lasso our fortunes to this growing economy and wealth machine that's in China? And that is all of our challenge. And I think it's one we can win at but it's one we have to attack at the very, very top of our intelligence uh, and uh, make ourselves lean, mean, and as brilliant as possible. Why don't I close there, and um, I would like some lean and mean questions. Uh, thank you very much. Yeah. Would you address some of the environmental issues in China and what they're doing about them? Yeah. The question was, would I address some of the environmental issues in China and what are they doing about them? Well, you would begin with the most depressing question. Um, this is the one topic in which I feel like the news is genuinely bad. Um, because anyone who's taken a statistics class here is familiar with the law of large numbers. And in China, the scale overwhelms good intentions. So if Beijing's adding around 1,000 cars to its streets every single day. You know, if China gets to half the rate of car ownership that we have in the United States, it will have twice as many or more than twice as many cars as we have in the United States, which would mean it will have 20 or 30 times or 100 times the number of cars it has today. Well, unless you have, and anyone who's been to China recently knows that automotive pollution is terrible. It's terrible there. So unless you cut it by 90, 95% per car, you're not going to do anything better than uh, keep the levels of pollution that exist today, even with that 95% reduction. But that's a dream. And any environmental regime will have a hard time keeping pace with China's development. Uh, sometimes there's good news about China's environment. They're building whole green cities or uh, dedicating themselves to wind power um, a variety of things. This is very, very small in comparison to the engines of environmental degradation in China. Um, I, I, I don't know what the rosy end to that is, and it's, it's frightening. Uh, would you assess the chances of a functioning multi-party democracy in the next 10 to 20 years? Um, you know, I had a piece in the Fort Worth Star-Telegram on Monday addressing just this issue. Uh, and it was inspired by a trip I made to Spain uh, last month. Uh, anyone here who's read my book knows that I have not been all that sanguine about China's prospects for pluralistic democracy. I think the Chinese Communist Party is very, very good at what it does best, which is staying in power. Um, but a friend of mine, an older friend of mine in Spain, kind of walked me through the history of fascist Spain. 
And uh, the Spaniards look at China a little differently. They say, well, uh, we went through a history where we had a terrible repressive government, but even that government started changing the civil institutions and started professionalizing and broadening the sphere of personal freedoms. And when the country had an opportunity to change when Franco died, it was ready to move very quickly to change. And I think some moment like that could happen in China because the sphere of personal freedoms there is broadening. Uh, and that's the hopeful message. But I do think no one should underestimate the power of a government that controls all of the media, is the number one economic player in the economy by far, uh, is all uh, mobbed up in every arrangement which gives benefit to connected people. Nobody should underestimate their ability to stay in power for the long term. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about the uh, foreign invested factories, the Taiwanese, Hong Kongese, yeah. and Germany, versus the state-owned, which now are falling into privatized factories? Yeah. Um, that's a really good question. It's a complicated question. Um, you know, the, the structure of corporate ownership in, in China is so complicated because each stage of economic development favored a different structure for corporate ownership. So under Mao, it was all state-owned industries, right? And then you get these village and township industries. And then you get industries that are started by the officials in the village and townships, but nobody really knows whether they're a village and township or they're private. And then you get partnerships between the public sector and the private sector, and there's every kind of structure you could possibly imagine. So to just split it in two like that doesn't give a complete picture. But I will say that one of the incentives in the state-owned sector right now that you're seeing is this drive by state-owned industries towards IPO. Because the state-appointed officials in those industries see a huge payday if they can get to IPO. And it's making the companies uh, better companies. Now, whether that means they'll be able to compete with these fabulous Taiwanese uh, in other foreign factories in China? I don't know. I've seen some that I think can, but I haven't taken a broad enough survey, but it's a very interesting dynamic in which you get very, very competitive players emerging out of the public sector. All right. Thank you very much, everyone. For more information about the World Affairs Council of Dallas-Fort Worth, visit them on the web at www.dfwworld.org.